Good morning. It's really nice to be home. Um, Me Young and I have been away for, I guess, nine months in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong is a very different place than Dallas. Um, I hope perhaps some of you can come visit us there. I tell people that Hong Kong is a wonderful place to visit and a terrible place to live. Um, in the sense that it's very crowded. It's sort of, I, I, I don't know if I said this to you directly, Ken, but it's kind of like living on a submarine. It's a huge concrete submarine. You spend almost all of your time indoors. A lot of the places where you shop and you eat and your work are underground. Um, you don't see the light of day too often. But having said all that, um, the Lord, I think, has blessed our ministry. And we're very happy that you are making it possible for us to serve the Lord there. The other thing that I'd like to say before I start, um, well, two other things. We miss CBC a lot. There's nowhere in Hong Kong we've found where you can receive the kind of teaching and enjoy the kind of music that we enjoy here. And uh, and obviously we miss you. Uh, the other thing I want to say is thank you to all of you who have cared for our sons while we've been away. Um, many of you know that Andrew went through some tough times while we were away, and a lot of you stepped up and really took care of him, and that made all the difference for us. It's hard to be in another country when your child is sick, and that's the love of Christ at work, and we appreciate it very much. Well, this morning... I want to begin a three-week series on the believer's reward. This is a topic I think we bump into from time to time in Scripture, but we don't tend to treat it on its own right very much. And as I've studied this topic, I was surprised to see how much Scripture says about the rewards that are awaiting us in heaven. Now, let me explain what I mean by the believer's reward. God has promised certain things to each one of us simply on the basis that we have trusted in the the completed work of his son to give us salvation. He has promised each one of us eternal forgiveness for all of our sins, past, present, and future. He's promised every one of us eternal life and fellowship with himself in the new heavens and new earth. He's promised every one of us a new immortal resurrection body. And the older you get, the sweeter that promise looks. Um, Every single believer will receive all of those things. There will be no distinction. They come purely by the grace of God, and they come to every believer without distinction. But the blessings that are ours don't stop there. There's another blessing that God has promised to us, and it's a rather unique blessing because it's an opportunity. It's the opportunity to serve him. You see, each one of us has a certain amount of time between the moment when we get saved 
and the moment when our lives on this earth will end, and we don't know how long it is, it's the time that we call mortal life. This is our time of service, the time to serve God. Now, our Heavenly Father recognizes that we won't all serve him in the same way. Some will serve longer, some will serve shorter. Some will serve with great zeal and enthusiasm, and some will not serve with as much zeal and enthusiasm. And in order to bless us and to motivate us not to waste this time of service, not to waste this opportunity that is a blessing. God has promised to reward each one of us individually in different degrees and in different ways according to how each one of us has served him. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the believer's reward. Now in this series, I want to focus on three areas regarding the believer's reward. Today I want to talk about the promise, the nature to some extent, and the security of the rewards that we are building up. Next week, I want to speak about the importance of treating every day of life as an opportunity to earn reward. And that's going to be the heavy message in the series, because we're going to be talking about the danger of wasting your life. On the last Sunday, I want to discuss how God will evaluate our service and how we can prepare intelligently for what Scripture calls the Bema seat of Christ, the time when we will stand before him and he will evaluate what we have accomplished in our lives and determine at that moment how big our reward will be, what form it will take, and that kind of a thing. I'm calling this series as a whole... The Believer's Reward, Rejoicing or Regrets. And I call the message for today, The Believer's Reward, The Promise is Real. Well, I want to look at uh, two things as we turn to the scriptures. First, what we're going to do is look at the word reward in the New Testament. And then we're going to go to three passages or sets of passages. One is in Matthew, one is in Hebrews, and one is in 2 Timothy. Let's start by looking at the word reward. Now, if you were to go home and pull out a concordance or look up on your computer the word reward in the New Testament, you would discover that it appears about 29 times in your English Bible. Uh, in in the New Testament, that is. Now, what's interesting is that of those 29 times, 13 are in the book of Matthew. And of those 13 in the book of Matthew, nine of those are in the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we're going to focus this morning. You'd also discover that an interesting term that's related to reward appears in the book of Hebrews, and that's the word rewarder where it says God is a rewarder. Now, of those 29 plus one words that you would find in your study, there are actually five different Greek words. And I only want to focus on two of those for now. 
The first one is the noun reward. It's the Greek word misthas, but it's a thing. And the second one is the verb to reward. It's an action, and that's the Greek word apodidomi. Well, let's take a look at the noun reward. This is the noun that appears 19 out of those 29 times where we see the noun reward in our Bibles. Now, if you were to look at the way this word is translated in various places, you would see that eight times it's translated as pay or wages. Um, Once it's translated as price. Now, those translations are important because they show us that this word misthas, which is often translated as reward, has to do with something that a person earns. Okay? A reward is not a prize. It's not something that's bestowed without, effort, without making an effort to earn it. It's something that you have to earn. This is the noun that we see in Matthew 5 and 6, where Jesus says over and over again, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, the second word that's translated reward is the verb, apodidomy. It talks about an action. And this describes an event in which one person pays off an obligation that he owes to someone else. It's often translated in the New Testament to pay back, to recompense, or to pay for. Almost like what you would do in a store when you purchase something or if you hire somebody to mow your lawn. Um, That verb, apodidomy, appears three times in Matthew chapter 6. And if you look in Matthew chapter 6 in verse 4, in verse 6, and in verse 18... Our Lord uses it each time in a phrase like this. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There's an idea there of payback. Okay? Now, if we had time and we don't to study the other three words that appear in our New Testament where it's translated in English as the word reward, we would see that they all share this common concept. All of them involve a relationship in which one party does a service for another, and the party who receives the service pays back a reward. In a sense, it's the discharge of an obligation. There's a transaction involving service and payment. And this is just as true of the rewards that God has promised us as it is true of transactions between ordinary people. Now, I've taught on this subject of the believer's rewards on a number of occasions, and I've discovered that believers are hesitant to accept the idea that when we serve God, he is obligated to reward us for our service. Okay? I'm going to come back to this idea, but I want to plant that in your heads now. And if you're uncomfortable with it, that's okay. We'll come back and discuss it. But I do believe that Scripture teaches that, in a sense, God is obligated to reward us for our service to him. Okay? And if you think I'm a heretic, hold on until the message is done. 
before you burn me. Okay? Now, let's turn to our texts in the New Testament. Let's go first to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, our Lord is going to speak, as we have seen, on the reality and the security of the believer's reward. Now, in a little while, we'll go to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, and there the writer of Hebrews will remind us that God never forgets our service. I think that's a very comforting thing. Our last text will be two passages in 2 Timothy where Paul, who will be facing his imminent death, he knows he's about to be executed, will express his own confidence that God can be trusted to guard our rewards and to bestow them at the proper time. All right, well, let's go to Matthew chapter 6. All right, this is a familiar passage, isn't it? It's part of the Sermon on the Mount, which we find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I want to read to you just part of that passage that we read already again, verses 19 through 21. Our Lord says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, you may have noticed that the word reward doesn't actually appear in those three verses I just read. But the context, the entire context in which this appears, shows that our Lord is very much speaking of individual rewards for serving him. I want us to consider the context, and then we will come back to verses 19 through 21. Well, you're familiar with Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, what is our Lord doing? He's contrasting two approaches to earning rewards. One approach is the approach that was common among the Pharisees. They did their acts of righteousness, as Jesus called them, in order to please other people. The other approach to earning rewards is the proper approach, where the goal is to please our Father in heaven. Now, Jesus gives us three examples of the right and wrong approaches to earning reward. In verses 1 1 through 4, he speaks of what my Bible calls charitable deeds. Your Bible may say acts of kindness to the poor. It may say alms. It's talking about helping those who are in need. The second example, in verse, verse 5 and 6, and really all the way down through verse 15, is the matter of prayer. And the third example, in verses 16 and 17, is fasting. Now, the pattern of our Lord's words in each one of these examples is really the same, and I would paraphrase it something like this. Watch out that you don't do your kind deeds or your prayers or your fasting before men to impress them. I tell you the truth, those who do it that way have their reward. They have it already. But when you do kind deeds, when you pray, 
when you fast, do it secretly. Do it for the Father to see, not for men to see. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Now stop and think for a minute. There's nothing wrong with kind acts to the poor, is there? Absolutely nothing. There's nothing wrong with prayer. There's nothing wrong with fasting. These are good things in and of themselves if they're done the right way. But our Lord wants us to understand that doing good things alone is not enough to please the Father. It's not enough to earn reward from him. And the key idea that our Lord wants us to get here is that the nature and the source of your reward will depend upon the audience for whose benefit you are serving. If you do your good deeds to impress people, you will receive rewards from people. The Pharisees wanted rewards from men, didn't they? They wanted praise. They wanted admiration. They wanted respect. They wanted others to submit to and recognize their authority. And through their public acts of kindness, through their showy prayers, through their fasting, where they made it obvious to everyone else that they were suffering, they got what they wanted. They got their reward. They impressed people. But notice what our Lord is saying. He's saying that each one of us has to make a choice. We have to choose whom we want to serve. You can seek rewards from men, or you can seek rewards from God. If you or I do our godly deeds with the motive of impressing people, we will earn no reward from the Father. God wants our motivation to be pleasing him. He wants to be the audience for whom we serve. Now, notice that Jesus says to the Pharisees, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. When your goal in godly deeds is to impress people, you get your reward right away, here and now. We want instant feedback, don't we? We crave immediate gratification. We want the applause and admiration of the crowd. You know, some of you know that my family and I don't watch television. We got rid of our television in 1994, and we don't watch television. But Myung and I have been in Hong Kong for nine months, and there's a television in our apartment, and sometimes we watch it. And it's interesting, some of the stuff we see is American television. I've never seen American Idol, didn't know what it was. We've watched on a number of, of occasions, America's Got Talent. You know what drives those people who get up on the stage and do either wonderful or absurd things and make fools of themselves? They want the admiration of the crowd. They want that feedback. They want that praise. They want that applause. They want that notoriety. That's the spirit of our age. That's why YouTube works. Everybody wants to be seen. Everybody wants to be known. 
Our Lord Jesus says, you can have your reward right now, if you want it now. But if you choose to take your reward now for the good things that you do, you won't be gaining any reward in heaven before the Father. And think about it. What about the human audience? What about those who watch us? They give us a reward that doesn't last. It's a temporary reward. Humans are fickle. They're hard to please. Today's hero is tomorrow's zero, isn't he? And our Lord is offering us something far, far better. He's offering us an eternal reward. A reward from our Father that is safe in the heavens, that is secure in the bank vault of God the Father. And we'll talk about this later, but it's a reward that once it is placed in your hands, you will enjoy for all eternity. First, in the millennial kingdom of Christ, and then in the new heavens and new earth. It's a wonderful payback. Now, coming back to our specific passage in Matthew 19, 20, and 21, our Lord uses a very interesting word for this reward. You know what he calls it? He calls it treasure. Treasure. Listen to verse 19 again. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, if our Lord were speaking today, he might have said, where the stock market crashes and where identity theft strikes and where the real estate bubble bursts. There's an important clue here. The reward which our Father will give us is not something we will receive during our mortal lives. It's not for here and now, but it is very, very real. Listen to how the Lord continues in verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now I see three ideas here that we need to explore concerning our reward. They speak of what, where, and when. Let's talk about the what. First, our Lord tells us what to store up. He says that we should store up treasure. Now, the Greek word for this will actually be very familiar to you. It's the word thesaurus. You all know what a thesaurus is? It's that book you look up to find words that are like other words. A thesaurus is a treasury of words. Well, the treasure that we are building up in heaven isn't words, but it is something very real. And like all treasure, it's something precious. Now, in the earlier statements that our Lord made regarding charitable deeds, prayer, and fasting, he spoke of reward, but here he speaks of treasure. Now, the treasure is the reward, but here he wants us to see something special about the reward. 
See, the word reward speaks of payment for service, but the word treasure speaks of something that is precious and that is carefully guarded. How many of you are mothers? Raise your hands. You remember the cute little things that your children make for you and bring to you that anybody else would look at and say, that's nothing, but you look at that and you say, this is evidence of my child's love for me. And a lot of you take those things and you put them in boxes and they're up in the attic because you, you don't have the heart to throw them out, okay? You treasure those things, right? Well, our Father treasures those things that we do that are godly where our motivation is to please him. Those are his treasures in the sense that he is watching over them and guarding them. But they're our treasures in the sense that they will one day be the basis of our reward. Well, the second thing that our Lord does is he tells us where to store up our treasures. He says, store them up in heaven. Well, back in January, we moved back to Hong Kong. We looked for an apartment. We got ourselves Hong Kong ID cards, a special card with, it's got our thumbprint electronically imprinted in it. And we finally could go to the bank and open a bank account. I asked a number of my friends, which bank should I go to? Which bank pays the best interest? Which one is the most secure? Which one is the most stable? Well, they gave us some advice, and I hope we made a good choice. But the fact of the matter is that no bank on earth is really secure, is it? The Father's bank in heaven is perfectly, absolutely, and eternally secure. He is the security guard. He is the bookkeeper. He is the regulator. There's no safer place to keep your investment than in the bank of heaven. Now, finally, our Lord tells us when we will be able to enjoy and show off our treasures. Your rewards, whatever you have earned so far in serving your Father in heaven, are safely stored away. For now, they're inaccessible. But one day, God will place those treasures in your hands, and from that moment on, through all eternity, you will enjoy those treasures. And that moment awaits the time after your death. Now, suppose you go to the bank today. Well, not today. Tomorrow, the banks are closed. And you put money into a CD, into a certificate of deposit. I'm not sure why you'd want to do that right now because the interest rates are so low. It's not worth the gas to drive to the bank to do it. But let's suppose that you did. You know that your money is there, but you know that you can't touch it until the CD becomes mature. It's tied up. Well, in the same way, we put treasures into our heavenly bank account and the Father watches over them. Our Father collects each deposit we make, he records it, and he guards it. 
one day in the future, he will cash in our heavenly bank accounts. And he will bestow upon each one of us every little bit of our reward that we have earned. And remember, your reward and mine will not be the same. They'll vary in size depending on how long and how well we have served. And I also think that they will vary in nature, although there's not a lot of information on that in Scripture. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Now, before we move on to the passage in Hebrews, I want to take a look at verse 21 very briefly. Look what the Lord says there. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this isn't hard to understand, is it? If your goal in doing the good things that you do is to please your heavenly Father, then serving him will not only be your first priority, it will be a joy. It will be a joy. And if serving God does not give you joy, you need to stop and think. Some believers work very, very hard and yet don't do it with joy. And it'll be a sad thing when their lives end to discover that some of the things that they did in God's service will not have accrued any reward because the motive wasn't the right one. I know I've done that, and I suspect some of you have too. We need to remember that the reward that pleases our Father is earned through serving him out of love. And if we understand that he's up there collecting every little bit of treasure, every little drawing, every little homemade Christmas ornament, you know, I'm being figurative here, and putting it in that shoebox, if we remember that, then it will make it easier for us to serve him with joy. Well, turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And I'm not going to look at a single controversial passage in this chapter. I just want to look at one verse. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now, these words were written to Jewish believers who were suffering persecution from other unbelieving Jews. Notice what the writer of the Hebrews says about their service to God. First of all, he says it's a labor of love. It's a labor of love which you have shown toward his name. These Jewish believers were serving for the right audience. Their motivation was the love of God. Now, secondly, notice that their service is ongoing. He says, you have ministered and you are ministering. They were keeping it up. That's good. That's praiseworthy. That's worthy 
of reward. And finally, notice the opening statement in this sentence, in this verse. I find it quite fascinating. The writer says, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. Now, do you remember the words for reward that we looked at earlier? We saw that a reward involves an obligation of the one who is served to reward the one who has done the service. Now, this is very important. And I think this is what's behind what this writer says here when he says that God would be unjust if he forgot your labor. Catch that. God would be unjust if he forgot your labor. There's a similar idea in 1 John 1, 9. Some of you know that passage by heart. I'm not going to take the chance of misquoting it, so let me read it to you. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, 1 John 1, 9 is telling us that God would be unjust if we as believers came to him, confessed our sins, and he said, sorry, I'm not going to cleanse you. God would be unjust if he did that. You know why? Because his son has paid for our sins and because God has promised that if we come, he will accept our confession. Now, there's something similar going on in Hebrews 6.10. It says that God would be unjust if he failed to reward us for our service. Now, make sure you get the point here, and please don't misunderstand me. The simple point is this. Our Father is never unjust. He never makes a promise and then fails to keep it. He is faithful. Often we are not, but he always is. God has promised to reward our service. And because he has promised, we need never fear that he will forget one tiny bit of what we have done out of love for him. That's a good basis for confidence. Did you ever wonder what would happen if we had a massive computer failure and wonder whether all your money in the bank would just go poof in a bunch of scattered electrons and you could never prove that you had put anything in the bank. Have you ever wondered about that? I have. Maybe I'm paranoid. It can't happen with God. His memory bank cannot be erased. His record books cannot be burned. And his promise cannot be broken. He will not be unjust to forget your labor of love done in his name. Well, let's turn to our last passage, 2 Timothy. Chapter, uh, 2 Timothy, we're going to look at verse uh, 12 in chapter 1 and then verse 8 in chapter 4. Now, as you turn there, let me remind you a little bit about Paul's situation when he wrote this letter. 2 Timothy, 
is a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, who was pastor of the church at Ephesus. He was a young man whom Paul had probably led to Christ and whom Paul had discipled. It's the year 66, 67 approximately. Nero is now the emperor in Rome. Rome has burned. Nobody's really sure how that fire started. Many people think that Nero started it himself because he wanted to clear a large portion of the city to build his own great new works of architecture. We don't really know whether that's true, but we do know that Nero blamed the burning of the city on the Christians. They were a convenient scapegoat for him. And following that fire, Nero instituted a policy where his soldiers and his policemen would arrest Christians, throw them into prison, and in various gruesome and painful ways, torture and execute them. Every day, more Christians were crowded into the prisons. Every day, more were executed. Some were thrown to lions and other wild beasts so that others could watch them being torn to pieces. That was entertainment in Rome. Some were made to fight battles in the Colosseum to the death while others watched. Some of the Christians were tied to poles, doused with tar and oil, and set on fire to light the streets of Rome. Now, when Paul was writing 2 Timothy, he was in a Roman prison. It was just a matter of days, weeks, perhaps months, before he would be executed in some similar way. And this is what he wrote to Timothy. Let's start with chapter 1, verse 12. Paul said, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him against that day. It's hard not to sing when you read those verses because they're part of a great hymn that we know well. Now flip over to chapter 4 and look, let's look at verses 6 through 8. Again, anticipating his own death, which would come soon, Paul wrote these words. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Now, there's a lot that we could say here about rewards, but I just want to make a couple of observations. Now, my first observation is this. The prospect of death did not make Paul panic. He understood the believer's reward, and he was looking forward to his own. Paul had served God faithfully for many years. He knew as we say, that you can't take it with you, but he also knew that you can send it ahead. 
And that's what he had done. He knew that his treasure was safe and secure in the Father's hands. Now, the second observation I'd like to make is this. Paul's words here in chapter 4, verse 8, are an invitation and a challenge to each one of us. Listen again to verse 8. He says, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved or who have longed for his appearing. Now, when Paul speaks of our father as a righteous judge, he's not talking about the question of whether he will go to hell or to heaven. That was settled a long time ago. That was settled on the day that Paul met Christ on the Damascus Road. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that issue was settled for you a long time ago. It was settled on the day that you came to faith. The judgment of which Paul is speaking is the evaluation of his rewards. Paul knew that he would be accepted into the Father's presence at the moment of his death. He also knew that he could trust the Father to impartially and fairly evaluate and bestow his rewards when the time came. And you notice that Paul describes his future reward as the crown of righteousness. I think that's a figure of speech, although I think that we will receive some kind of a crown. I would expect that the size and the quality and the composition of our crowns will vary. They will reflect how we have served Christ. Um, We'll talk about the evaluation and how that will work in a future message, but for now, I just want you to recognize that the key to earning a better crown of righteousness is learning to love Christ's appearing. In other words, it's learning to view your life now, each moment of your life, each day is your life, as preparation for that moment when you will stand before him and he will say something like this, okay, Dave, your time is up. Let's see what you did. And then he'll open the books and he'll go through the records and he'll calculate the reward and he'll bestow it. If you look forward to that day with joy, with anticipation, with excitement, with hope, then you will discover that it's easy, that it's more fun, that it's more joyful to spend your life doing the things that please the Father, out of love for the Father. Well, I want to conclude, I want to conclude by reviewing what we've seen today. I have seven ideas. There's nothing magical about that number, and we'll see if we can get through them in a sensible amount of time, because I know you're getting hungry. Okay, idea number one. Every believer will receive a reward. Okay? Don't be mistaken about this. The question is not whether you will receive a reward. The question is how big your reward will be, what your reward will be like. The more faithfully you serve the Lord with good motives, the greater your reward will be. Now, the second idea is this. 
every little bit of reward that you've already earned is secure in the Father's safekeeping. That comes right out of what he said in Matthew chapter 6. Now, I'm going to be very blunt here because I don't know how else to say this. All of us sin, don't we? We still do. We can't stop. We can learn to gain victory over sin. We can learn to live more godly lives, but we continue to sin. All of us go through periods in our lives when we are less fruitful than other times. All of us go through times when we are not walking closely with the Lord. The fact that every little bit of treasure is already safe in that bank up there is a great comfort to me. Because as I understand it, it means that our reward can increase, but it never can decrease. To me, that's greatly comforting. Now, having said that, I want to issue a warning to you, and I issue this warning to myself. Don't ever say to yourself, I've earned enough reward, now it's okay for me to sin. Don't ever say that. There's two reasons you shouldn't say that. The first one is, when a believer gives himself over to sin, he is asking for the Father's hand of chastisement to come his way. He is looking for a spanking. And the word spanking may make us laugh, but we're not talking about something to laugh about. The Father does discipline his children when they give themselves over to sin. Secondly, None of us knows how much time we have left. You know, I hope that I will live to be 95 like my favorite professor, Dr. Pentecost, and that I will be teaching until I'm 95 years old. I hope so. But I might walk out the door and get run over by a dump truck on the way home. It would be silly to ever say, I have earned enough. So let's not do that. Okay, idea number three. Every believer's reward will be unique. Now, we know from Matthew 6 that each of us is storing up treasure in heaven, and it's obvious that some will store more and some will store less. Our rewards will be unique in, in as much as they will vary in size. I also suspect, although there's not much information given on it in Scripture, that our rewards will vary in kind. And we'll talk about that a little bit another day. Okay, idea number four. Earning your eternal rewards, building up that storehouse in heaven, is exactly what it sounds like. It is working for compensation. Now, this is the idea that I said that some people have a hard time with. It shouldn't disturb you. Now, remember what we've seen today. First of all, only those who are already saved by grace through faith can earn rewards. Unbelievers can't earn rewards. We all agree on that. Okay. Secondly, the testimony of Scripture is clear that we are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. Isn't that true? Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If that was God's plan, and if God has promised to reward us for our service, 
then why should we feel that it's wrong to view serving God out of love for him as service that we can count he will pay us back for? There's nothing wrong with it. Salvation was a gift of grace, wasn't it? Our present fellowship with the Father is a gift of grace. The promise of our resurrection bodies is a gift of grace. The promise of eternity with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all believers in the new heavens and new earth, that's a gift of grace. You know what else? The opportunity to work for reward is a gift of grace. This is not something we're prying out of the Father's hand or sneaking out of his back pocket when he's not looking. He said, I want to bless you this way. So let's accept the blessing and let's work out of love for him and a recognition that he will reward us. It's all good. Idea number five. There will be some surprises when the rewards are issued. Remember what our Lord said in Matthew chapter 6? He said, don't do your godly deeds before men. To the extent that it is possible, do them in secret. Now, generally speaking, you can't help out a poor person without at least the poor person knowing what you're doing to help them. There's nothing wrong with that person knowing. But our Lord says we should avoid being showy when we do those things that are pleasing to him. You know what that means? That means that some of the most godly people will be the ones who are the least appreciated by other believers. It means that many of you are doing things in a private way that are accruing reward after reward after reward, and nobody knows about them except you and the Father. It also means that guys like me and Bob who stand up in front of others and do public ministries, do so in very great danger because we can seek satisfaction and feedback for the wrong reasons from the wrong people. And I do think that there will be some surprises. Time will tell. All right, idea number six. When our rewards are issued... The glory will go to God, but we will still receive credit for our service. Now, I was going to read the passage in Revelation chapter 4, but I'm not going to read it in order to save time. There's a passage there that speaks of the 24 elders casting their crowns on the ground before God and saying, "All all glory and honor and praise belong to you. That's a figurative action in which they are saying, everything that I have accomplished that is worthy of reward is really because you made it possible for me to do it. The glory for our rewards will go to the Father, but that does not mean that we won't be compensated. They're both true. Think about this passage. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. You notice what that's saying? It's saying that when we do the right thing through our efforts, it's only possible because God is giving us the power. How about Colossians 1.29? To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Paul says, I'm sweating, I'm pushing, I'm straining. But I can only do that because God is at work in me to provide the power. We could not serve if God had not saved and empowered us. But when we serve, we are working. And remember that when he is glorified through what we do that is pleasing to him, he is also building, he is also accruing our rewards. Okay. My last idea, I'm going to cut this really short because I'm over time. And I hope you'll, you'll forgive me. I'm so excited to be back with you. It's nice to be teaching you again. Idea number seven. The believer's reward is one answer to the accusation of cheap grace. We believe in grace, don't we? We believe that we are saved by grace. We believe that Christ did it all. We believe that it's all a gift from the Father. Some people will look at us and they will accuse us of believing in cheap grace. They will say, how can it be right for you to say that a person is accepted before the Father, is accepted into heaven, is given the gift of eternal life on the basis of nothing but trusting in the work of Christ? And it doesn't matter how the person lives. Well, that's probably not what we say, but that really is the essence of the message, isn't it? Jesus did it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We don't contribute anything to our salvation. And yet if we understand what our Lord is teaching us here today about rewards, we must must recognize that, number one, grace wasn't cheap. It cost the father his son. It cost the son his life. It cost him the terrible suffering that we talked about this morning. And secondly, the father expects us who are redeemed to serve him. And we are fools if we don't. God doesn't save us and say, go do whatever you want. Go live a life of sin. Go be a source of pain to the rest of the world. What does he say? He says, serve me. He says, be a blessing in the world. He says, do godly deeds. He says, be a good citizen. He says, be a faithful husband. He says, be an obedient son or daughter. He says, do all those things, and when you do them, I will reward them. This is the bottom line. If we truly appreciate God's grace, we won't treat earning our individual rewards as an add-on or an optional activity. Instead, we'll pursue our rewards with zeal. Driving that zeal will first be a love for God. Secondly, a love for other people. And lastly, the confidence that God never fails to reward those who 
who serve him with a true heart. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in your grace. How good you have been to us. To us who are so much not good. You have reached down and saved us from the bottom of the pit. You have called us to be your sons and daughters. You've given your, your spirit to dwell in us. You've given us so many great promises. Thank you for the special blessing, which is the opportunity to serve you for reward. I pray, Father, that you would take the things that we have seen today and use them to encourage us to view each moment of each day as an opportunity to please you for your glory, for the good of others, and for the building of our eternal reward. This we ask through your Son. Amen.